zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Atlantic City, released April 3rd, 1981. It was written by John Guare, directed by Louis Malle, and released by Paramount Pictures. Multiple Atlantic City stories revolving around the city's rejuvenation were all planned at once. A paperback written by Warren Murphy and Frank Stevens called simply Atlantic City was optioned. At the same time, Warner Brothers signed a deal to adapt George Edlund's forthcoming book with the same title. If you'll notice, though, none of those names have anything to do with this film. ICC, a Canadian production house, was adapting Laird Koenig's novel The Neighbor, based on the same setting. Director Louis Mall was given the money to make the film by ICC, with an agreement that if the money wasn't spent by a specific deadline, that he would return it. Wait, he would return all of it? Yeah, if, if he hadn't started production. Okay, so, but if he had spent some of it, he wouldn't have to return the sum of the, including the amount he spent? I think so, yes. Okay. Maul's girlfriend at the time, actress Susan Sarandon, introduced him to playwright John Guare, and disappointed with the current draft, with the deadline fast approaching, Maul hired playwright Guare to rewrite Koenig's draft of the screenplay, apparently so much that Koenig's work doesn't even warrant a story by credit. Maul basically told him, write any story in Atlantic City with a role for Susan Sarandon and a major male star. Writers Guild arbitration determined that the final script is not based on Koenig's screenplay, but if you want to do a comparison yourself, go rent 1982's Killing Em Softly with Peter Segal and Irene Cara, a direct adaptation of Koenig's novel The Neighbor. So this, of all of the Atlantic City stuff, I'm guessing it was first to market? Correct. I don't even know if the other ones made it the whole way through production. It was mm. just at the same time they were all being announced. IMDb summarizes Killing Him Softly like so. The girlfriend of a man murdered for debt falls in love with the killer. So it's a little different from what we're dealing with here. Mall got permission from Atlantic City Resorts International to shoot in their casinos for a mere 15 hours. I'm impressed with what they got in maybe a two-day shoot, possibly one-day shoot. Yeah. The film won the Golden Lion, top prize of the 1980 Venice Film Festival, tied with Cassavetti's Gloria. Seems like the festival jury had to type that year, because those are very similar films in terms of the mood and plot. It won three genies for Best Foreign Actress, Sarandon, Best Supporting Actress for Kate Reed, and Best Art Direction for Anne Pritchard. It also collected five Oscar nominations, Picture, directing, actor for Lancaster, actress for Sarandon, and screenplay for John Guare, but it lost them all. So this is one of the films that was nominated for the Big Five, but did not win right. all of them, let alone any of them. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Henry Fonda, James Mason, Laurence Olivier, Jimmy Stewart, and Robert Mitchum were all considered for the lead role of Lou. All good choices. Fonda was excused on account of the insurance risk because of his ill health, but ironically went on to win the Oscar that Lancaster was nominated for after a vigorous campaign from Henry's daughter Jane Fonda for On Golden Pond, obviously. Ginger Rogers turned down the role of Grace, disgusted by the sexual content of the film. We open on someone slicing lemons on a cutting board. This is Sally Matthews, played by Susan Sarandon. She hits play on a cassette deck, and opera music fills her kitchen. She starts rubbing lemon juice all over her skin. Yes, I use the I use the verb form of ceviche. Sure. <laughs> she ceviches herself. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. She does this near an open window, and we back away from it, into the apartment across the way, where a man, Lou Pascal, played by Burt Lancaster, watches her from around the edge of a curtain. He lights a cigarette, and we cut to a city street the next day, where a man stands on a corner and watches as another man enters a phone booth and dials a number before turning to leave without talking to anyone. The first man enters the booth after him and then collects a package from the top of the phone booth. 
clearly a drop has been made. Seconds later, a car skids up to the booth, and a third man enters, scouring it for the package. This guy is in a more formal outfit, implying that the scraggly-bearded middle guy likely intercepted an illicit handoff. We cut to the interceptor and his girlfriend making their way out of town and fantasizing on how to spend their newfound fortune. They talk about a high-quality speaker system and flowers and balloons and stuff for when their baby is born, and then a more left-field request. <laughs> and I want acid. I want acid so we can learn from the baby's wisdom. All right. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Doesn't she also get to ask him to, like, tattoo the baby? Yeah. On, yeah. <laughs> on its face. <laughs> We cut to hours later and the car is broken down on the side of the road overheating. His girlfriend is still blurting out a wish list from the car. A hang glider. Skydiving lessons for the baby. Yeah. And I also want his face to be tattooed. We cut to the couple crossing a bridge together, trying and failing to hitchhike. Later we see them sitting in the back of a flatbed truck as it enters Atlantic City. They pass an enormous elephant statue and the girl mistakes it for Ganesh and points to it as a sign of good luck. In reality, this is Lucy the Elephant, as she's essentially the Hollywood sign of Atlantic City, and that it was originally built to advertise real estate development. It was built in 1881, and is allegedly the oldest surviving roadside attraction in the United States. Oh, that's interesting. It seems impossible, but maybe that's right. You think that a giant rocking chair is older, or a big old frying pan? I don't know, it just seems like something would have survived longer than than a century at is this it a, point is, is it wood is it wooden uh yeah it's it's wood and tin hmm. and it's six stories tall that's cool can you go up in it is it like the cabazon dinosaurs you can you can go up on the top of it like the people are in the picture in 1971 it was falling into disrepair and due for demolition until locals raised enough money to repair it and it's now on the national registry of historic places We cut from Lucy to what I thought was a freeze frame and turns out to be super slow-mo footage of a building being demolished. Yeah. This is actually stock footage of a hotel that was destroyed in 1972. We cut to Lou Pascal's apartment again where he irons some ties. A bell rings in the corner of the apartment and he stuffs a sock into it to mute it. Outside, the newly rich couple enter a casino on the Atlantic City boardwalk. On the casino floor, they stick out as underdressed and overloaded with luggage. An employee tells them they can't carry their bags across the floor, and they tell him they're looking for a friend named Sally who works here. We see Sally working at an oyster bar and noticing her friends enter the place. She asks a coworker to cover for her momentarily. She doesn't look excited to see them, and we learn why when a coworker asks. Who are they? My husband and my sister. Sally leads them along the boardwalk back to her place, and Lou watches them from his window. As they open the door to her place, Lou exits his and moves downstairs to enter another apartment. The woman inside appears bedridden and complains that she's been ringing a bell for a while to call him. He walks into her kitchen to prepare breakfast, and she reminds him that she pays him good money to help her. Back upstairs in Sally's place, she notices her guests starting to make themselves comfortable, prepping beds and hanging posters, and she lets them know that they aren't staying long. She yanks her husband, whose name we will learn is Dave Matthews, into another room, and says that she doesn't want him bothering her here or at her job. Sally asks Dave to explain himself for getting her sister pregnant and running away with her. What do you want me to say? I'm sorry? These things happen. She tells him to leave, and he kisses her, thinking that will fix things. Apparently it does, because he's no longer kicked out immediately. The woman downstairs tells Lou she wants her dog to be buried with her, because she doesn't trust Lou to keep it alive. Before he leaves, he collects a payment from her to replenish the kitchen, and he asks for five bucks more. You want cigarettes? You steal cigarettes. You're the big-time thief. Mr. Mastermind. Mr. Ten Most Wanted. That's enough. So at this point, I thought that she was holding this over him. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, okay, oh, okay so she's she's got blackmail to, to leverage against him. Yeah. So it was sarcasm. Yeah. Upstairs, Sally prepares tea to her opera music, and Dave switches the radio to a rock station. She switches it back, and he tries to argue that she owes him for getting her out of Saskatchewan, and she gives him a solid gut punch for being an asshole. On his way out of the apartment, he digs into her purse and takes out a bunch of money. 
I'm excited for this character's eventual death already. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that note on my first pass. <laughs> I was like, there's no way this guy's not going to die. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. Alone together, Sally's sister, Chrissy, wonders out loud, if Sally holds it against her, that she ran off with her husband and got pregnant. I would guess probably, yeah. Sounds safe. And the fact that she just witnessed her, I guess, baby daddy. Take all this money. Yeah, stay, take, just steal from her. And didn't say shit. She tells Sally that she considers the baby a product of all three of them, no doubt laying the groundwork for them to leave it here with Sally to raise alone. Chrissy starts talking about how enlightened Dave is, and Sally is hurt enough. She doesn't have the heart to tell her sister that her baby daddy is a complete con man, and instead allows them one night to stay in her place before shoving off to the next port. Lou takes Grace's dog Pepe for a walk along the boardwalk, and he sees Sally run by to get back to her shift. He drops Pepe off at a groomer, and they seem to know the dog well. Lou moves through the neighborhoods around the casino collecting bets to deliver. So I think it, it should be pointed out that like every step of the way, it, the city seems to be falling apart because right. it, it looks like the groomer is going out of business. They have a, they have a sign in their window that they're going out of business. Yeah. And all of the neighborhoods where he's collecting bets are, are pretty run down and ragged. And the boardwalks are all lined with construction workers and cones that are like cordoning off areas. Well, yeah, because everything's being bought out and demolished. Right. And the it's it's a, it, I guess it, you know it's like batteries not included kind of situation where yeah. they're or a night of the juggler if you will. Yes. <laughs> where where they're trying to just make the living conditions so terrible that they have to leave. Right. We cut to a casino where it looks like Sally's in some kind of a blackjack dealer boot camp. It starts like a regular room, but then a man approaches her table and spills an empty drink across the felt and chastises her for taking her eyes off the cards for a moment. The man reminds the training dealers to always concentrate on the cards. After his lecture, the trainer asks what she thought of the music, presumably referring to the opera stuff that it turns out she's only listening to in the hopes of getting a promotion. We cut to Clifton's bar where Lou delivers the bets, and Lou is invited to keep a share of the bets that he delivered. I got any winners? Better not have. I can't afford fucking winners. Lou tries to sell the guy a cigarette case for a double sawbuck, which, according to my cursory research, means $20. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sawbuck is a tenner. I did not know that. The man says he can't buy a sandwich with a cigarette case and shoes Lou away. Turns out Dave is here at the same bar, and he goes to speak with Lou's money man, Fred O'Reilly. Fred moves to empty the bathroom so Dave and him can talk business. It turns out that what Dave stole was not gems or precious metals, but a big old bag of Coke. Fred dips a pinky nail into the sample and compliments it. He asks Dave where he got it, mentioning a recent drought of the product on the whole East Coast. I found it in a phone booth. In Philadelphia? How did you know? It seems really stupid. Yep. to admit this yep yeah i mean because if the guy knows it's it, if the guy knows that something went missing he somebody has told him and he could tell somebody else hey the dude that stole your shit is here i would like a reward and i'll point him out to you you shouldn't be selling it in the same size that you got it originally yep and you shouldn't tell anybody where you got it or where you came from or anything for sure but it seems dave's reputation has preceded him here Fred recommends Dave dress nicer if he wants to do business around here, but Fred isn't interested in bringing on any new business partners. He just wanted to enjoy a free sample. Fred moves into a bathroom stall and writes a phone number on a slip of paper and then flushes it before walking away. This is Fred's way of indirectly suggesting Dave peddle his drugs elsewhere, and Dave manages to fish the number out of the bowl before it's gone forever. Well, he said that somebody was asking him for coke right since he didn't have any he's like i i'm gonna send you along but you know it wasn't me that passed you along but this is such a circuitous way of handing someone a phone number it's like i'm gonna put it in the toilet seat just to make sure that i know he wants it it's like the guy clearly wants it dave asks the bartender for a phone and lou at the bar vouches for the kids so she hands over the bar phone dave doesn't ask why lou vouched for him but lou mentions that they live in the same building but do they live i thought they lived across from each other they, now, the doors are next to each other, but apparently there's like a narrow passage between the two apartments so that yeah. their windows face each other. Okay. Yeah. I, I have the same problem with this apartment that I do with the apartment in Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. Where where their apartment looks across the way to another apartment and you can see right through to the uh, 
where the parade is. And th- this is a miracle on 34th Street, by the way. Yeah. 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 So like <laughs> There's no parade in this one. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. It's like it's like I don't understand the arrangements because they're across the hall from each other and, yeah. and they they must wa- like form like a weird Y. Right, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I just I don't and understand why there's a gap between the buildings that I they would look at each other. The reason in this case is that some hotels do that. They have these little divots that cut in so that you can have windows on both sides of your apartment to make it feel bigger than it is. Okay. So that there's some natural light coming in, but it's still such a narrow passage that I doubt they're getting any natural light in through these windows. When Dave gets on the phone, it seems like the guy is keen on the deal, but Fred tells Dave that he still looks like a narc and he better dress appropriately. He tries to rope Lou into setting the kid up with duds, but Dave didn't appreciate getting to use the bar phone enough, so Lou just walks out. He's like, nah, I'm too busy to deal with this guy. He didn't say thanks. Dave follows him down the street and shittily apologizes for ignoring him while pretending that he's heard all about Lou in Vegas. And this is the first hint we get that Lou is kind of an idiot. Yeah. Because this kid is saying all this flattering stuff like oh everybody says you're the big man he's like who said that he's like oh uh, you the guy uh and he's like was he a tall guy yep tall guy that's the one yep but like yeah i mean i guess lou is an idiot he this kid should have you he's seen the kid before the kid's never seen him before why would he have any idea who lou is even if he had heard of lou but this was this was the first inkling that i got i was like this is either this is one of two things a badly written character or an idiot and I think the answer is that he's just an idiot. And that's why he's so quick to fall for this because he's completely obsessed with these flattering comments and he just wants to know that anyone remembers him anywhere. Dave accompanies Lou as he returns Pepe to Grace's apartment. Dave offers Lou a hundred bucks to rent his room for an hour. And when he notices a Weight Watcher scale in Grace's room, he says to grab that too. In Lou's room, Dave starts cutting his score with a baby laxative, like yeah. a powdered baby laxative. He tells Lou to wave his hand over the mix and pretends that he's magically transformed $2,000 worth of product into $4,000. Seems crazy to cut this stuff 50-50, but then, you know, I was always a very generous dealer. I I mean, if it's good stuff, I mean, he could probably afford to cut it a lot. Which stuff? The Coke or the laxative? Yeah, both. High quality (laughs) laxative. As long as I get the wet shits, I'll keep buying your stuff. (laughs) This Coke is so good. I just shit myself. <laughs> Call it brown thunder. <laughs> Grace rings the service bell so vigorously that the sock clogging the bell falls out and Lou puts it back in there. Dave convinces Grace that his girlfriend can work miracles with her healing massage and they leave Chrissy in Grace's apartment against her will. On a walk, Lou admits to the full extent that he provides for Grace, including sexual needs. We cut to Sally having dinner with her dealer instructor. He tells her that becoming a licensed dealer will change her life. I hate you going back to that oyster bar. The world should be your oyster. (laughs) He gives her another cassette tape in the hopes of teaching her some French. Back with Dave and Lou, we learn that he used to work indirectly for Al Capone. He tells Dave it's a shame he didn't get to see Atlantic City when it had the Floy Floy. A reference to a 1938 jazz number entitled Flat-Footed Flugie with a Floy Floy. That was something special. Atlantic City had Floy Floy coming out of its ears in those days. Which is kind of true, if unintentionally. Because in the song, Floy Floy is code for a venereal disease, likely syphilis, because Flat-Footed Flugie is the Radio Safe title of a song initially called Flat-Footed Floozy with a Floy Floy. Syphilis having the unfortunate side effect of affecting the way that people walk. So, a flat-footed prostitute has a floy 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 doesn't isn't like an acronym or a or no a, but it kind of sounds like venereal disease floy floy <laughs> right that's what nope. it meant yeah so lancaster here is saying that atlantic city once had syphilis coming out of its ears and shame you didn't see all this oh you missed out on all the syph it was great <laughs> we just shit ourselves on half coke and bled syphilis from our heads <laughs> the streets were paved with syphilis <laughs> Now everything in Atlantic City is legit and consequently boring. Back in Grace's apartment, she seems to appreciate Chrissy's specialty now, 
and she asks for this specific foot massage that clears her sinuses again like she's just fascinated with what she's able to do with her well, hands she as she's as, as she started the foot massage she started listing all the places that right. you press here for this you know like she was definitely a certified reflexologist yeah it's like they're all little strings that lead to bells upstairs in her head it's true Ah, metaphors. Ah. At work in a locker room, Sally practices her French with a coworker when she finally notices that Dave took her wallet. Back outside with Lou, Dave learns that even the Atlantic Ocean is somehow boring compared to what it was in the city's heyday. When they arrive at the hotel where Dave has scheduled the drop-off, he sends Lou upstairs with the drugs because Dave isn't dressed for the deal. In the universe of this film, I don't necessarily buy that Lou is dumb enough to do this. Yeah, well, he... He's definitely hesitant, but he seems also desperate. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think this is leaning on the same thing as before, where it's a stupid thing to do, but he see, he feels like a badass doing it. I think he's also really desperate for money. I don't know if he is that desperate for money. I think he I think he he, he begged for five more dollars for cigarettes, and she's like, "You want cigarettes? You steal them." So yeah. the, the, he doesn't have five dollars for cigarettes i think he's you know the hundred bucks for the room and going up and doing a drug deal i'm not saying a hundred bucks isn't a lot to him i'm just saying that it's not it's not life risking money i don't know i feel like he's pretty desperate maybe well i wanted to bring something up in this while he's on the stairs because there is a actor credited uh only as extra yeah and and i think this is, this is him? him i think it's him coming down the stairs oh interesting I, I was really looking for him all over the damn place i didn't even notice he was in the credits until after i finished the movie so i wasn't looking for him okay uh so uh but i believe i i, I don't have any confirmation but i believe this is elias Cateas coming down the stairs that's awesome it, it's his demeanor it's his swagger i was like is he already bald at the time no 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 but it, it's, it just looks and and feels like him coming yeah. down the stairs Lou is invited into a suite full of high rollers. Outside, Fred pulls up alongside Dave with the people he stole the score from, and a chase ensues. Dave starts climbing into a mechanical parking structure to escape the rightful Coke owners. I I did not know things like this existed, like outside of Japan, <laughs> well, or or even that long ago. Yeah, like to the point where you, because well, first of all, because I mean, is this was this being built in service of all the new stuff that was coming? Because it doesn't seem like this place is needing that much parking i also don't think that it's much more efficient than a general parking structure um i i guess considering that the operating costs of like maintaining all these elevators and the electricity running all day yeah um that's i i don't know the cost benefit yeah um plus you're you're by the seaside so there's salt water and yeah it's gonna cause all kinds of problems uh but i was pretty impressed that that because obviously it's real yeah i mean yeah it was a real thing the director was like yeah, we found this thing and we shot on it. It was a fucking nightmare to shoot anything because, you know, everything's changing the whole time. It's shifting and you're yeah, losing yeah. daylight the whole time. It's and hard it's to keep dangerous. consistent lighting. Yeah, that's the other problem with it. But it's a, it's a cool setting for this chase. It, it seemed very uh, noir to have a chase on this kind of thing, like like a third man type chase in the sewers. In, it reminds or, me of the, the same fight in the James Bond movie, though. Was it Skyfall or... Where they're fighting in one of these moving parking structures. Oh, uh, no. Uh, that was uh, one of the Mission Impossibles. Was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what I was thinking of then. But the whole thing is moving as the chaser and chasee climb from floor to floor higher and higher up into the skyline. Dave reaches a dead end and the dealer catches up with him and just buries a switchblade in his chest. It's not even like a, hey, I'm here. We're going to talk about where my coke went. It's like, no, you're done. Yeah. I, I thought for sure he was going to. Maybe have a question yeah. <laughs> about where the drugs were. But he doesn't have any questions other than what them guts look like. Back at the hotel, the buyer is trying to hit up Lou for a larger order on account of the local drought of product. Lou puts a handout for the four G's to complete the deal and then rushes out to the bathroom to count his money. The bathroom attendant recognizes him as he washes his face in the sink. It's a man named Buddy O'Brien and Lou tips the man a buck over buddy's protestations buddy offers to shine his shoes to earn the dollar it's like i thought that was a bigger a was a lot. bill but he he literally gave him a dollar mm. i could see george washington on it police sirens echo around the bathroom from outside leaving the building lou sees dave being loaded into an ambulance he's not in a body bag which is promising but we cut to the oyster bar where the police enter to return sally's wallet which they clearly found on dave and i'm guessing at this point means he's dead because 
you would keep that with the body right unless the person was dead i guess i guess you would still i would, I would still keep it with the body because it's evidence it, he's either dead or unconscious because otherwise they would just assume like oh this is your personal belonging that you have on you maybe this is your wife and it is his wife yeah or it would be like in an evidence bag because like they so they could go is this your wallet right and they need to come with us yeah the cops are being led into the casino by representative mr shapiro played here by head explodey guy from scanners yeah. earlier in 1981 <laughs> they escort her to the frank sinatra wing of the atlantic city medical center moving through the hospital they pass robert goulet as himself delivering a check to the hospital on behalf of a group of local casinos. That should have been on our list of best actors as themselves. Yeah, well, we hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> Sally has walked into an operating room just as efforts to save Dave have failed. Uh, on that note, though, I mean, because you could have used Scrooge, Bob Goulet and Scrooge. That's true, Bob yeah. Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas. Yeah, he's like freaked <laughs> out by the alligator. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think about him without thinking about your really poor taste costume oh, yeah. for Halloween. Well, he would have liked it, though. <laughs> I think Goulet had a had a funny sense of humor. He, he, he was great on The Simpsons and that the Emerald's Nuts commercial. Yeah, <laughs> where he's keep, on the ceiling. Yeah, he's slinking away keep from the... Keep the Goulet at bay. Around three in the afternoon, when your blood sugar and energy are low, Robert Goulet appears and messes with your stuff. But, um, yeah, he passed away on October 30th. Yeah, I mean, he he had been dead maybe a day. and you Not went, even, like a few hours. And I was like, and you, all right, you I need quickly, a red turtleneck for you Halloween. You quickly shaved your beard so you just had a mustache and painted your face white so you could be Robert Goulet. I did do that. <laughs> Walk around with like a scotch in, on the rocks all night. I think he would have thought it was funny, though. And I just basically leaned on my Ron Burgundy impression because it's essentially a Robert Goulet impression. <laughs> The nurses pull a blanket over Dave's face, but she stops them for a moment to absorb the image of his dead, intubated head. On her way out of the hospital, Sally tells them that she doesn't want to take possession of her husband's body, as she makes a phone call from a payphone, as Goulet sings a song to the press, and eventually directly to her through the glass of the phone booth. Well, also, the police say that she's, you're not going to leave town, are you? She's like, no, I just got here. I love it here. I, I think she misses the point of the question. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> did you kill this guy? Yeah. She fails to make a collect call to Dave's parents because they won't accept the charges. Lou finds her here in the hospital building and offers to walk her home. They pop into a diner where Lou offers to pay for the phone call to Dave's parents and eventually delivers the news himself when Sally isn't up to it. He says they didn't sound broken up about it. <laughs> so it feels like a situation where they've been at odds for a while. He tells her that he'll help out with anything she needs and she wonders how she's going to tell her sister when Lou informs her that Chrissy is downstairs helping Grace and that she can take a quick nap before she has to say anything. In her apartment alone, Sally puts on the opera music and lemons her boobs some more as Lou watches from across the way. Ceviches. Ceviches her boobs. <laughs> Lou heads downstairs to check on Chrissy and Grace, and they've fallen asleep together. He wakes Chrissy and sends her upstairs before taking her place in the bed with Grace. He puts on a swing record, and we see some motions under the blankets. Lou? Who was got into you? Lou? Lou heads back upstairs where suddenly he is cutting another delivery of Coke with baby laxative. Lou pops by a funeral home on his way to the oyster bar and shows up with paperwork for Sally to sign. She asks what it's about and he says, don't worry about it. <laughs> but she signs everything that he points to. He notices that she just cut her hand open trying to crack open some shellfish. He uses more of his $4,000 winnings to buy a new suit to return to yesterday's buyer with the new batch. Sorry, that made me think of Gremlins all of a sudden. <laughs> Lou collects another cool 4000 and then leaves. He also buys a new suit for his buddy working in the bathroom. Lou shows up at the oyster bar, orders a dozen oysters, and explains that the paperwork she signed was permission to send Dave's body back to his folks. I probably would have at least asked if that's what she wanted because he wasn't there when she said she didn't want to take possession of the body. Or, or asked if that's what the parents wanted. All of a yeah. sudden, they've got to have to deal it's with like, the body. Did you order something? <laughs> this is big. I always forget when I order things from yeah. Amazon, especially the dead bodies. <laughs> yeah. And I hate it when they just leave it, you know, when I specifically said I need to sign for it. <laughs> Sorry, there's a, a scene from Firefly 
where they're going to pick up a, a package at a place and they open it up and it ends up being a body and uh, Adam Baldwin's character goes, what y'all order a dead guy for? <laughs> <laughs> he invites Sally to lunch elsewhere and then pays for the dozen oysters, admitting that he didn't need them. And Sally's coworker seems excited about this. I'm guessing because nobody touched them yet so she can sell them to another customer and just pocket the money he paid for them. At a different, fancier place, Sally and Lou have their wine glasses topped off by a waiter played by Wallace Shawn. Inconceivable. Outside, construction crews dynamite for the foundation of an incoming casino, and Lou lets Sally know how disgusted he is about it. Sally seems less bothered by them, and admits to long-term plans of working as a dealer at Monte Carlo in Monaco. They don't allow women dealers now, but she has plans for the future. Wally walks up with a plate of shrimp, and Sally says, take it away, no more seafood. Uh, no fish, no clams, no mussels, no oysters, no shrimp. I want meat. Uh, and lamb chops uh, and pork chops and liver. Bring us a menu. Uh, and waiter. More wine, the same. I don't want anything that swims. The waiter replaces their wine bottle, and Lou invites her to sniff the cork. She asks him to teach her about being rich because he appears sophisticated to her. She tells him a story about a man who appeared on a quiz show and would have won a lot of money, except he didn't know his social security number. Then she asks Lou for his. I assume this was all a joke and that she was just trying to steal his identity. But apparently, for a long time after they started handing out socials, people didn't keep the number secret. In fact, for convenience sake, a lot of people got their social security numbers as tattoos <laughs> so they could just <laughs> read it when they needed to fill out paperwork. Uh, my first year at Moorpark Community College... Uh, all your student IDs were your social security number and they oh were po- they were posted like in places for like your classes or your grades and stuff. That's crazy. Oh my yeah, God. it was it was nuts. I think when I started college, I, I hadn't memorized my social security number yet. You know, like it was something that I, mm-hmm. I that I had to look up, had to look up. And then but I feel but I looked it up and then I filled out all this paperwork but I then, you know, was remembering it when I was filling out the rest of the paperwork and I remembered it wrong. So on oh. shit tons of paperwork, I wrote my social security number down wrong for like all this college financial paperwork. Oh and my stuff. gosh. <laughs> like, Is that why you didn't have to pay for any of that debt? No, I had to go back and fix it all. Oh, that's a pain. <laughs> it's like, you score some really rich person's social security. <laughs> they just collect it from that person without even saying anything. In 1938, an executive named E.H. Ferry was selling wallets. That included a slip of paper as an example with a fake name, but his actual secretary's social security number on the card. Oops. Five years later, 5,700 people were using that social security number to avoid paying their taxes. About 12 people were still found to be using the number in 1977, almost 40 years later. Or Donald R. DeChico. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, the exact situation where a man loses a quiz show for not knowing his social security number is the climactic moment of a 1950 film called Champagne for Caesar. She might have just been referring to that, thinking it was a real story. Surprisingly, though, Lou answers the question for Sally. I don't have a social security number. Everybody's got a social security number. You pay income tax? Nope. She asks to check his fingers for fingerprints. Lou takes her to a flower shop, insisting that if she isn't going to attend Dave's funeral, she should at least send flowers. He tells the salesperson to make a wreath out of six dozen roses, and Sally gives her the address. Yeah, uh, to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Moose Jaw. It's near Medicine Hat. <laughs> I like that extra little bit. Do you guys recall the last film that we covered to center around a couple from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan? <sighs> I remember it came up before. Just a couple of kids from Moose Jaw. What was that from? I mean, it's not going to come to me. Richard's got it. I, I don't have it. I really don't have it. Magic Apple. Mystery Apple. Oh, yeah. Oh. Who the hell are they? They're nobodies. I swear they're just a couple of kids from Moose Jaw. Moose where? I think it's in Canada. The Apple. It's from the apple. Just outside, Sally tells him that she has to meet up with her friends to help them build a house. He asks if he can see her again later, but she says she has dealer class. It sounds like she's shooting him down because she keeps coming up with reasons they can't hang out and they part ways. On her way back to the casino, she passes through a construction area and someone drops a large pipe next to her. The sound freaks her out and she freezes in place until Lou gets to her to calm her down. She suddenly tears up over Dave. 
Lou offers to get her a ride to where her friends are waiting, and they hop into a little motorized rickshaw-looking thing with, like, a bench on the front. Yeah. Sally invites Lou in to see their progress building a house on the beach. It looks like there's about ten dealers in training living in this same beach house. She tells Lou some of the tricks of the trade as she paints her room in this house. She takes her dealer test in three weeks, and she expects to make 20000 a year once she's working. No kidding. Yeah, 30000 with tips if I'm really good. Hey. Lou makes it more and more obvious that he's interested in Sally, as she keeps trying to steer the conversation back to Grace in the downstairs apartment, until Lou brings out the big guns. I watch you. Huh? The place where we live, I watch you. Through my window? You saw me? I figured maybe somebody was there. <laughs> somebody? There's yeah. only one other it's possibility. Literally, the window points directly into <laughs> one person's window. You know who lives <laughs> next door to you. He asks why she uses lemons, and apparently it's just to counteract the oyster smell. She isn't the least bit upset or disturbed by his admission. She asks what he does while he watches, and he talks her through the whole show she puts on, from opening her blouse to slicing and applying the lemons. Suddenly she's approaching him with her shirt unbuttoned, and he runs his fingers through her hair. He begins to caress her all over, and we cut back to his building as Lou and Sally are getting home, and the man who killed Dave is waiting for them. He stops them on their way into the building and demands to look in Sally's bag. They slap her around and pin Lou against a wall while they search the bag. The guy knocks Sally unconscious and dumps her shit on the ground, busting up the radio, assuming that there's money hidden away inside. They leave empty-handed, assuming she has nothing. Making their way up the stairs into the building later, Lou is embarrassed that he couldn't protect her. Grace is waiting in the stairwell, first to accuse Sally of paying him in clothes to keep her company, and then, upon seeing Sally's bloodied nose, accusing Lou of letting someone else do that to her. Lou closes himself in his room. Inside, Sally's apartment is completely destroyed. Everything is torn to shreds, and Chrissy is meditating in the bathroom, just repeating a phrase over and over again. Grace shouts through the door at Lou while he packs his things to leave forever. He almost packs a gun, but then he tosses it aside. First, she's angry and then apologetic. Grace finally notices the damage that the men did to Sally's room. God. You heard them. Why didn't you call the police? My husband, Koki Pinzo, said never call the police. As Lou leaves the building with a packed briefcase, Grace tells Chrissy that you can't count on Lou. He ran away when her husband was killed by the mob, and he'll do it again. My suspicion at this point was one of two things. Either he killed her husband, and he stuck around out of the guilt, or the reason he left back then was to avenge her husband. But it turns out he's probably just a chicken. Yeah. Sally finally puts two and two together and asks what these people were looking for in her place, and Chrissy admits that they brought drugs they stole, and Dave went out to sell them with Lou. Sally storms into Lou's place and finds the scale, some laxative, and the residue of another mixed batch. We cut to that other hotel again, where Lou probably intends to unload the rest of it. He offers the man a price of 5000 for what's left, and the man counters with four, so Lou just rips off one-fifth of the brick he wrapped in tinfoil. Then he tells the customer to spread the word that Lou is dealing this stuff and to leave the ladies alone. Later, Lou's friend the bathroom attendant sees him on the boardwalk and thanks him again for the suit. Sally rushes late to her dealer class. The instructor lets her know that Mr. Shapiro would like to see her. It turns out the gambling commission will not allow her to complete her training because of her connection to Dave and his criminal record. She is fired from the casino. On her way out, she tries to borrow 50 bucks from her coworker at the Oyster Bar, but she points Sally in the direction of Lou on the casino floor. We cut to Lou at a table being spoken to by the guys Dave stole the dope from. They keep leaning over his shoulder to whisper invitations to talk in private outside, but the dealer and eventually hotel security urge the men away from the gamblers. Sally rushes up to try and get the prize Dave was killed for from Lou, and the hotel security is much more lax with her. She spells out everything that happened very clearly and loud enough for the nearby baddies to understand exactly what's going on. When security finally tries to escort her away from the table, she is intercepted by her instructor, who urges her to sit with a client at another table for good luck, but what he's really talking about amounts to vague prostitution. She flips out on him, and as security walks her out of the building, she recognizes the men who beat her up and slaps the man who hurt her. Mr. Shapiro offers them a bunch of comps to keep them from suing the casino, because she was an employee up until a couple minutes ago. In the commotion, Lou caches his chips and sneaks out the back door. 
When Sally is thrown out the front door, she sees Lou ducking into a cab and follows it to a bus depot. She also happens to catch Lou boarding a bus and cleverly tells the driver that her father has dementia and she needs him off the bus to take his medication. The bus driver, equally clever, moves through the bus announcing that they've oversold the seats and that Lou bought the last ticket, so he has to board the next bus leaving the station. By the time Lou puts together what's going on, it's too late. And Jimmy said he won't play a stereo loud if you won't smoke in the broom closet. I made love to this woman today. Daddy, please. I held her in my arms. And I made her happy. Let's not be naughty. It's gonna be okay. Lou has a little hissy fit at the station about how feared he once was. I'm dangerous. People come to me from Las Vegas. I know Bosie Siegel. I was a cellmate. They spend the whole time walking home, arguing over where her money is, when suddenly our villains skid up in front of them on the sidewalk. They push Lou against a wall, and the guy who hit Sally before holds a knife to her neck. While the sidekick repeatedly pesters Lou for the money, he is suddenly shot through the heart and falls to the sidewalk. The slappy turns his attention to Lou and is shot as well. Amazingly, neither of these guys was packing heat, and Lou has now killed both men. He's completely reinvigorated by this double murder and can't stop laughing as they steal the gangster's car to drive off. I hope they switch vehicles soon because somebody's going to have an eye out for this car. At Sally's advice, Lou tosses the gun out the window into the water. They check into a nice hotel and order champagne and fancy French crackers at the front desk. Well, uh, on the way to the hotel, they go through a, a toll booth. Right. And he tries to pay with a $1,000 bill. Right. Which they were already taking out of circulation by 1980. I mean, yeah. in the late 60s, I think, they were taking them out. Yeah. On the TV in their hotel room, a news broadcast is reporting on the people Lou killed. They speak directly with the police chief, Allman, who seems to contradict himself. We're tracing a new lead today. You sound angry. I'm damn angry. The mobsters come to Atlantic City, they're dead. They're going to have to answer to me personally. So these are mob-connected slaves? There's no mob slaves in Atlantic City. Let them kill themselves somewhere else, not on my turf. So he admitted that he was furious that mobsters died here, yeah. and then said there were no mob killings, but also threatens to kill any mobsters who dare die in this town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Anyone, any mobsters dying in this town are going to have to talk to me. Yeah, on their way out. Back in Grace's apartment, she's offering Chrissy a flight back to Saskatchewan at her expense. Chrissy says she doesn't feel bad about Dave dying, because it just means he'll be reincarnated faster. Back in Lou and Sally's hotel room, he confesses to her that Bugsy Siegel was only his cellmate for about 10 minutes while he was being transferred to Leavenworth. He further confesses that he's never killed anyone before tonight, but he's weirdly giddy about it. He's very excited to hear about what he did on the news, and it never seems to cross his mind that he made it very public that he took from these men and that if they wanted anything back, they should find him. Lou asks her to come to Florida with him so he can show her off to all the guys from his past. She recommends France but he keeps telling her about his connections in Florida. She seems to accept the offer when he gets distracted by an update on the television. A witness has described the shooter, and Lou is positively elated when an illustration of his face fills the screen. Well, somewhat it, of an illustration of his face. It's a little, the, the hair is darker, so it yeah. makes him look like a younger man. Information should please hey, call the me. Atlantic City hotline. It's me. <laughs> we'll stop on the way down and buy all the newspapers. This story's going to be big all over the country. Remember. Gangland Atlantic City. Two, four, six. Again, she recommends France. In the middle of the night, Lou takes a phone to the bathroom to call Grace. She pretends he's waking her up and demands an explanation. He's an idiot, so he can't help but brag about his new celebrity. Sally wakes up and overhears him on the phone. She fishes through his wallet for a fat wad of cash and stuffs it in her purse. He watches her do this from the cracked bathroom door and then hangs up on Grace. Sally offers to run out and get some pizza, and they take turns back and forth offering to drive, before flipping a coin to decide. She wins the coin toss and almost forgets to ask what kind of pizza he wants before leaving him forever. Lou reminds her at the door. Don't forget to ditch the car. Soon. Implying he knows that he'll never see her again, and she should find a less conspicuous vehicle soon to avoid being connected to the mob killings. Realizing that she is caught, she tells him, You saved my life. Outside, she books it for the car and leaves while he watches from the window upstairs. She turns on the radio. Starts rubbing lemons on herself. Yeah. While she's driving. No. No, that's not true. On the radio, she hears a broadcast on the great wines of France and laughs about the coincidence of it all. 
Back at the hotel, Lou asks the man at the front desk to call him a taxi back to Atlantic City. Sounds like he basically has plans on turning himself in. He picks up the paper the man was reading and sees the story on the front page about the mob killings, and again, he can't help himself. With a big smile on his face, he announces, I did that. (laughs) Back in Atlantic City, Grace takes the last grand worth of dope and runs it over to the customers that Lou was working with. They agree to 1,000 for the last foiled nub of product. And when she steps away from the door, Lou is standing there to give her a little round of applause. It seems like he just wanted to let her in on the fun, so they went to this hotel together so that she could be a drug dealer for a little bit. We see the happy couple walking along the boardwalk, and we tilt up to a crane demolishing one of the old buildings of the boardwalk to make room for more casinos. Credits roll over the demo work. By the way, this looks like such a fun job, and I would just stand here and watch this happen for hours, Mm -hmm. just slowly destroying a building with a crane. I feel like the the two characters we see here, Grace and Lou, obviously represent like the old Vegas archetype, and they this was like their last gasp at youth, and uh, they probably won't get caught, I would assume, because the the police aren't going to be looking for two elderly people having right. committed these crimes and s- murders and drug dealing. Well, I thought, and I thought buddy was going to be with them, and it was going to be like like we're getting the band back together, right, kind of thing. And then it's just like red yeah basically um but yeah that's the end of our film it's just the two of them walking happily down the boardwalk arm in arm our director here was louis mall he directed au revoir les enfants which tarantino once recommended to a customer at video archives the rental store where he worked in his early 20s the customer's response was i don't want to see no reservoir dogs and tarantino enjoyed the response enough to use it as a film title later although he credits a completely different story for inspiring the title sometimes uh he says that it was that he would go to production companies and they would always have a big pile of scripts and none of them were ever getting read and he said it was like a reservoir full of dogs that they all nobody could get out because they were all stuck in there together it's like a a lobster bucket situation but he decided on reservoir dogs from that so it's one of those two i think he should have called it lobster bucket yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's much then, then mr red would have made much more sense All right because he's well cooked mall directed this just after pretty baby with brooke shields a film that likely inspired her casting in the blue lagoon last year and he followed this film immediately with my dinner with andre the same year writer john guare also wrote taking off and six degrees of separation adapted from his own play the music here was provided by michelle legrand despite his credit The score he wrote for the film was not used, but it is available for purchase on CD and labeled as the soundtrack to this film. All the music in the film is diegetic, which is what they call it when your film can't process sugars properly. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go with a different joke, but I like your... It works too. I was thinking Dianetics and I'm like... Oh yeah, L. Ron Hubbard? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Diegetic is a book about volcanoes. That's all I know about Dianetics. Uh, there's a there's a volcano on the cover. Michel Legrand won three of his nine Oscar nominations for the scores of Yentl, Summer of 42, and an original song from the Thomas Crown Affair. He also scored Ice Station Zebra, Brian's Song, Lady Sings the Blues, F for Fake. We heard his work last year on The Mountain Men, The Hunter, and Blech, Falling in Love Again. <laughs> How did they get Michel Legrand? And he came back for the same director's next movie, too, that god-awful-looking slapstick of another kind with jerry lewis from our next film uh did he write the song windmills of your mind for yes okay yeah Yeah. that was what the oscar was for nice because sting sting reprise of that for the pierce brosnan right yeah Uh, he also scores never say never again and orson welles the other side of the wind cinematographer richard siepka chip chipka uh was also the dp on ilsa the tigress of siberia the editor suzanne Barron is back to edit our next Louis Maul Wallace Shawn film, My Dinner with Andre. Burt Lancaster was Lou Pascal. He was Sergeant Milton Warden in From Here to Eternity. He was Wyatt Earp in Gunfight at the OK Corral. He's Lieutenant Jim Bloodsoe in Run Silent, Run Deep. Mel Bakersfield in Airport. Dr. Moreau in The 77 Island of Dr. Moreau. And he's back later this year as Bill Doolin in Cattle Annie and Little Britches. His last credit was as Dr. Graham in Field of Dreams. Yep, Moonlight Graham. I was just going to say that that, yeah. that was, like I think, his last role. Uh, he had previously won an Oscar for Best Actor as the title character of 1960s Elmer Gantry. Yeah, that was going to be my next thing I was going to yep. bring up was Elmer Gantry. Susan Sarandon played Sally Matthews. 
She was the best part of Loving Couples last year. Before that, she'd appeared in Louis Maul's previous film, Pretty Baby, as the mother of Brooke Shields. On the set of that film, she developed a relationship with the director that they maintained through this film. She's also in Rocky Horror Picture Show, Witches of Eastwick, Thelma and Louise, Dead Man Walking, Stepmom, Speed Racer, and Jeff Who Lives at Home. She was Betty Davis on Feud, Betty and Joan. She's the voice of Dr. Wong on Rick and Morty. And she's also Lynn Onkman, the Mary Kay Letourneau stand-in on 30 Rock. Kate Reed played Grace Pinza. She was Dr. Ruth Leavitt in The Andromeda Strain. She's Linda Lohman in the Hoffman Malkovich Death of a Salesman. She's Sylvia Morgan from Death Ship last year. And Maureen Stapleton was briefly considered for a role in this film, and I have to assume that would be the Grace character. I think that would make sense. I like Maureen Stapleton. She's very funny. But I think Kate Reed does a fine job here, but I just really like Maureen Stapleton. Uh, Michelle Piccoli played Joseph. That's uh, the instructor, I think, of the of the dealer class. Uh, he appears as Paul Javal in Le Mapri for Jean-Luc Godard and Henri Husson in Louis Bunuel's Belle de Jour. Hollis McLaren played Chrissy. Not a lot of credits I recognized. Uh, Robert Joy was Dave Matthews. He was Colonel Stevens in AVP Requiem. He's Charlie in Romero's Land of the Dead. He's Lizard in the Hills Have Eyes reboot. And just recently he played Welty in the Goldfinch adaptation, which I haven't actually seen. I like the book, but I haven't seen the movie. Um, and he was also Sherman in Millennium. Al Waxman played Alfie. He was Rudnick in Heavy Metal later this year. He's Dr. Brindle in Millennium. He's Detective Stewiski in Class of 1984 and Peter in Meatballs 3. Robert Goulet's a singer. He's a singer in this movie. Yep. And he sings. Obviously, he's a well-known lounge singer with a habit of cameos in movies I like. Sometimes as himself. In Naked Gun 2 and a Half, he plays Quentin Hapsburg. He's himself in Scrooge and Maxie Dean in Beetlejuice. He provides the lounge singer voice of the squeaker toy in Toy Story 2 for his rendition of Randy Newman's You've Got a Friend in Me over the credits. Moses Znamer played Felix. He has mostly producing credits. Still very active. This was his first acting credit. His last is as Secundus's answer box in a movie called Abraxas Guardian of the Universe from 1990. 93 in America, so it's further away for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it looks awesome. It stars Jesse Ventura and Sven Thorson. Here's the logline. An alien policeman arrives on Earth to apprehend a renegade of his own race who impregnates a woman with a potentially destructive mutant embryo. Wonderful. I, yeah. I, I think I've seen clips of this movie. I think maybe on Red Letter Media or something like that. But, the poster uh, is of, of Jesse Ventura with right. just laser blasting out of one of his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Angus McInnes played Vinny. Uh, he was gold leader in A New Hope. He's Sergeant Whitman in Hellboy, Judge Silver in Judge Dredd, and one of the military police in Nothing Personal last year. He's also Jean LaRose in Strange Brew. Sean Sullivan played Buddy. He was Dr. Bill Michaels in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's one of the men sent with Haywood Floyd to investigate the monolith on the moon. Herb Smith in The Dead Zone. And last year he was Dean Collier in Nothing Personal. That's the guy who sent Professor Donald Sutherland to investigate animal abuse instead of teaching in a classroom. Uh, he also, for some reason, sent him to... Pick up razors. <laughs> yeah, uh, deliver his grievances to a razor company that he didn't like for some reason. Yeah. Wallace Shawn was the waiter. Uh, we had him in Simon last year, and he's in a bunch of Pixar stuff. Princess Bride, Clueless. We'll see him next in Louis Maul's next film, My Dinner with Andre. Harvey Atkin was the bus driver. He was Morty in Meatballs. He's Ronald Coleman in 99 Cagney and Lacey's. He's the voice of King Koopa yeah. from the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3, and Super Mario World. He's also the guy delivering sandwiches <laughs> from Floyd's Deli in The Stupids. But you're surprised to see me. Certainly are. <laughs> I assume you work for the Lloyd? Me? No. My boss's name is Floyd. No. It's pronounced Lloyd. Norma Del Agnes played Jean. She was Brenda in Meatballs. Last year we had her as the valedictorian in Middle Age Crazy before Bruce Dern takes over the stage and tells everybody that life sucks. She's back later this year in Circle of Two. She looks super familiar to me, but it's not for any of the credits on her IMDb, so she might just look like someone else. Specifically, Vicki Lewis from News Radio, I figured out. <laughs> That's who it is that I'm picturing. That's the co-worker. Right, right, right. Uh, Luis Del Grand played Mr. Shapiro. He was Scanner Man. 
head explodey, back as a surgeon in Happy Birthday to Me later this year. John McCurry played Fred. He plays Syed Alvey in Wolfen later this year. Eleanor B. Croft played Mrs. Reese. She's Mrs. Kelly in the Canadian 3D surrealist horror cult film The Mask and followed this as Shirley in Funeral Home. Chuck Linder played President of Hospital. He was Felix Leiter in Goldfinger. He's a physician in Lolita, and he's Dr. Latour in Day of Resurrection, which gets a minisode from us this year. Sean McCann played Detective. He was Jake in Nothing Personal. That's three people from Nothing Personal, yeah. but that's because this is a uh, this is a Canadian production. Um, and he's back for Death Hunt later this year. He's O'Brien in Naked Lunch and Frank Rittenauer in Tommy Boy. Tony Angelo played a poker player. He was the floor supervisor in Ho Heavenly Dog. And Elias Codius was an extra who I guess was in that elevator shaft. Or no, he was, he was in, in the, the, stairs. the stairwell. I think. I, I don't have any confirmation because he's just credited as, as extra. Right. But uh, I like it just in my heart, I believe it is him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and we know him best as Casey Jones in the first Ninja Turtles movie, yeah. which, according to IMDb, is called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1, the original motion picture. That's the full <laughs> title on IMDb right. right now. Fair enough. Um, I like this movie. Um, I think it's it's a small character piece, but um, I think it's fun. I'm glad that it didn't get too messy and that the ending wasn't too depressing because I kind of wanted for this this to have a sort of happy ending. Um, it. It has a weird beginning because we're following three groups of people. Right. And and I wasn't really sure what this movie was about at this point. Like, because cause then all of a sudden one of those groups is killed. And I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Now what's this movie about? I thought it was going to be about this guy dealing drugs, but now it seems like it's about something else completely. I think yeah. it's Dianetics. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> That's what it is. Is there a Xenu in the volcano? That's yeah. That's right. right. Yeah, the 747s. <laughs> the exact replicas of 747s that they crashed into volcanoes. That's what happened. Um, I, I still think that uh, Susan Sarandon is mopping the floor with everybody else in this movie in terms of the performance, um, which was the case last time too, but she's, she's doing a really great job. Um, and I don't think that... Uh, I, I mean, I... I don't think it's it's an Oscar worthy performance necessarily because she's not really asked to convey a lot of emotion, um, but she's a very believable character in this situation. Right. Um, and the same for Burt Lancaster, although I th- I feel like he gets to do more because the whole giddiness with having killed people mm-hmm. that he seems like an amateur, like like he's like a really excited poser who finally like followed through on something that he told himself he was going to do his whole life. Yeah, yeah. So he's never been anybody. Uh, his whole life, he's always just had these stories that he, that he uses to play himself up, and the only one who really knows anything about him is Grace, and holds that over him. Yeah, uh, but, and she kind of thinks he's pathetic too, which is right. kind of why he's under her thumb all the time. And so now this was his big, his big chance. He's a big man now. But even though it felt like shooting fish in a barrel, because these two guys have never, they've they've never had a gun the whole for the whole movie. Well, I also don't think that they saw him as a threat. Right. And so they certainly true. didn't expect him to do something. Yeah. He didn't do anything last time. Right. They just thought he was an old man. They didn't realize he was an old Las Vegas Lou. But yeah, I would say this is a thumbs up for me. Yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. I too give it a thumbs up. I, I found it enjoyable. I never, I had never seen it. I, I confused it for several other films. Uh, I, I think, oh, really? I thought it was the Robert Altman, Robert Altman film. But I think I was, I was thinking of kansas city i don't know no maybe or, or nashville Ugh. see i already They're did it again cities. yeah <laughs> i i, I can for some reason i always confuse it with ragtime and i think it's because the posters are similar mm. uh so i confuse it with one of many other films named after cities kansas city is the robert altman one uh, but I mean, they're both Robert Altman movies, oh. but <laughs> it's just a matter of one. which one richard in yeah. his head <laughs> no, is confusing <laughs> it for kansas city then yes okay well i have been singing the words Atlantic City to the tune of the song Kansas City all mm. week. So, um, Atlantic City, here I come. They got some pretty little women there, and I'm gonna get me one. Letterbox, what are we thinking? I have it at number 15. All right, what's that above and below? It's 15 out of 35. It is 
uh, below Cabo Blanco and above Sphinx. Richard, what are you thinking? Uh, I have it at number three. Oh, okay. Um, wow. I, I, I have it. I have it very high. Um, I almost put it below Dogs of War, but Dogs of War <laughs> is just the uh, ending. Yeah, I was just like, I really, if I had to pick between the two of them, I would probably watch Dogs of War again first. But that one doesn't have any Sarandon boobs though in it. No, it does not. That well, I remember. The, um, and I almost even put it below Cutter's Way, but then I was like, eh, it goes above Cutter's Way. But wow. Then, um, so yeah, I have it in number three. So it's below Thief, but above Docks of War. Um, I have it in 12th, which is just under Cabo Blanco and just above Omen 3 for me. I think that's everything for Atlantic City. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Hardly Working, which IMDb describes like so. In Jerry Lewis's first film in a decade, he plays Bo Hooper, an unemployed circus clown who can't seem to hold down a job. <laughs> That's got to be funny. We leave you now with a trailer for Hardly Working. Watch out, America! Jerry's back! The world's funniest funny man has something to say about inflation and unemployment for all us working stiffs. He's the original jerk. Bumbling and stumbling. It's Jerry Lewis in his first new motion picture in a long time. Oh, I like that. Hardly working. More fun than a day off. <laughs>